with the sponsee. And I looked at her and I said, you are worthy and lovable and you are important just because you're alive. And there's only one of you. We'll never have another one of you. We need you. So know that you are loved and lovable. And I was never able to say that to another human being because I didn't experience it. And the reason I was able to say those things was because I believed them in myself. I believed it's my birthright to be happy. It's my birthright to feel some joy and some peace. And that's what the program has shown me. I heard it through the grapevine. Welcome. It's the AA Grapevine Half Hour Variety Hour, featuring the collected voices of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm Don, an alcoholic in Greensboro, North Carolina. Hey, Don. Hey, everybody. I'm a, I'm a Sam. I'm an alcoholic <laughs> in Palm Springs, California. We've I'm a Don. Today. <laughs> well, Sam, did you read the Grapevine Daily quote about gossip in AA that came Ooh, up recently? Yeah, that I did read that one. That was a good one. Let's share it. It's from Bill W., our co-founder, writing in 1961. He says, quote, in AA, we talk a great deal about each other. Provided our motives are thoroughly good, this is not in the least wrong. But damaging gossip is quite something else. Of course, this kind of scuttlebutt can be well-grounded in fact, but no such abuse of the facts could ever be twisted into anything resembling integrity. He says, this sort of superficial honesty is not good for anyone, so we need to examine ourselves Following a gossip binge, we can well ask ourselves these questions. Why did we say what we did? Were we only trying to be helpful and informative? Or were we not trying to feel superior by confessing the other fellow's sins? Or, because of fear and dislike, were we not really aiming to damage him? This would be an honest attempt to examine ourselves rather than the other fellow. Here, we see the difference between the use of the truth and its misuse. Right here, we begin to regain the integrity we had lost, end quote. You know, all of that, Sam, reminds me of the acronym that I heard recently. I love it. WAIT, W-A-I-T. Why am I talking? Now, I've never heard that one, Don. I like that. <laughs> I, I, why am I talking? It's another good little check-in. The one that I heard that I love, I learned from an Al-Anon speaker many years ago, and that was, does this need to be said? Does this need to be said by me? Does this need to be said by me right now? Mm. And, you know, I've been in a situation, let's say I was in a friend group in recovery, and then I was no longer in that friend group, and I was hanging out with other people after the meeting. And I heard how those people were talking about that friend group I used to be a part of. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, really? I didn't say this to them, but I, I, I made a mental note of, so this is how you were talking about me last week. It just kind of was one of those wonderful little stingers of awareness for me of how am I behaving? Like, I don't want to do that. Exactly. Yeah. Well, it's interesting in AA because... We do 
like Bill said, we do talk about each other and it's good if it is in terms of love and caring and like, oh, I don't know, like Frank's not doing well. We need to gather around him. Yeah. That sort of thing, you know, and we are talking about another person and we're all talking about what their situation is, you know, but it's a whole different thing to be aware of when it moves into, well, I never thought he'd get sober or <laughs> you well, that a character assassination, that kind of thing. Or yeah. And so to take that personal inventory to check in and really look, why am I saying this? Is this to make me feel superior in some way or? Yeah. And make that inventory about me, not me inventorying someone else. Exactly. But there are people in my life, really close friends in my recovery circle, that I do have permission to take their inventory. And that's a different thing. It's a different situation taking someone else's inventory when they've asked me to. (laughs) Yeah. And it's a different situation taking someone's inventory when they're not present. (laughs) Big time. Because you've talked about this a lot, you know, about a blind spot. We have blind spots. And unless the people who know me really well are pointing them out to me, I'm going to remain blind to them. Like that bald spot on the back of your head, Don. (laughs) What? What? I don't see a bald spot. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is the peculiarity of A compared to my friend groups before I came to AA and that Mm. we are self-critical and we are willing to call each other on our behavior in a way that you just can't do with someone outside of AA. Someone outside of AA, it never is appropriate to say, "Mm, you need to look at yourself here and check your motives on this. I mean, (laughs) their hackles are going (laughs) to rise. And, you know, so often the hackles rise within AA, but that's, they they tend to go down pretty quickly. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Well, who's our guest today? Don, today we'll be visiting with Peg M. And following that, we will return to our recurring segment, Blast from the Past. In a recording from 1957, Bill W. talks about our singleness of purpose. Blast from the past. That sounds explosive. Kaboom. (laughs) Well, you know, that's what happens when time collapses and the past collides with the present. It's that timey-wimey stuff. Oh, my goodness gracious. It sounds to me like the fourth dimension of existence that I've heard so much about. (laughs) Time. One day at a time, time. Same as it ever was. Same as it ever was. Sam, how can people send us a question? Don, the easiest way to do that is just to pick up the phone and call 212-870-3418 and you record your message. That's 212-870-3418. Hi, I'm Peg M. I'm in the Washington, D.C. area. I got sober in Syracuse, New York. My sobriety date is January 27th, 1995, and I am now living, uh, it's a suburb of D.C. in Chantilly, Virginia, and I've, I've grown up here in terms of my AA life. My sobriety has grown in Virginia, and I'm so grateful for that. Well, Peg, you've been sober for quite a while in AA. You got sober in, did you say, 94? 95. 
What was going on with you in 1995 that made you decide to come to AA? Well, it, it didn't just happen. It led up to 1995, but there were many, many bottoms, if you will, for me up until the point I surrendered to this disease. And I, you know, I didn't have this like meteor blowing up bottom. I had small bottoms over the many years that sort of just deteriorated my sense of self-worth and my sense of self. Mm-hmm. And it all came as a result of, of my destructive drinking. And I believe I was born an alcoholic. I saw on both sides of my family. I was brought up in uh, upstate New York, which is a little town called um, Messina. It's right on the Canadian border. And it's probably snowing there now. <laughs> and um, it is a beautiful place to grow up. But I was in a very destructive upbringing. I had a raging alcoholic father. And what he did while he was drinking was enraging is he was violent. He was violent towards us and to the cars he was driving and other people in his life. And that's what I thought alcoholism looked like, problem Mm -hmm. drinking. I did not believe that I was an alcoholic because I didn't display those behaviors until later in my drinking career. And then I started to display the rage, not so much the violence, but more the the self-destructive behavior. And I wasn't able to connect the dots between my behavior and my emptiness and my disease. I didn't even know I had a disease. All I knew was I can't stop drinking when I start. Connecting drinking as being the problem is difficult. All alcoholics have that problem. I didn't think that my drinking was the problem. Me either. But when you said you made that connection that you can't stop drinking when you start, did you try to stop drinking then? Just stay stopped on your own? I did. Uh, People in my life were saying, you might have a drinking problem. And I was like, no, I can stop. And I would white knuckle it. So I would stop but I was thinking about it all the time. I was Mm. obsessing. It's part of the disease, (laughs) right? It's that mental obsession. It's like, okay, when is this like dry period going to be over? I'm like watching my watch. I wanted, I was jonesing for a drink so badly during those times. And that was just sheer willpower. And that never lasted. Although it feels like, you know, that it should count. When I would do that, I would say, okay, well, I've spent two weeks. I haven't had anything to drink. Although I'm thinking about drinking every moment of every day. Exactly. That's it. Well, I remember that thing I heard early on in recovery about thinking about not drinking is still thinking about drinking. Yes. Right. (laughs) Right. And normal drinkers, normal people don't think like that. Mm -mm. All I knew was how I felt on the outside. I, I had a good life. I had a good life in terms of a job my home, friends, although all my friends drank like I drank. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I couldn't understand why no matter what I set out to achieve, I was still unhappy. And the more unhappy I got, the more success I achieved, the more I drank. And I just was using alcohol to fill up that hole. And I was using everything outside of myself to fill up that hole with alcohol being the number one substance and it just wasn't working. 
and I was going down this rabbit hole and you couldn't see it from the outside, but my seams were starting to split around my life and I could feel it. And I knew I wasn't going to be able to tolerate this despair much longer. And I'll I'll also say that I really did not like how I treated people when I was drinking or during my alcoholic, active alcoholic days, because I could still treat people very badly and not have a drink in my hand. And so the combination of the destructive drinking and the destructive behavior, just it collapsed. I felt like I collapsed inside. And when the truth hit my reality is when I, I surrendered. Mm. I said, I can't, I need help. Was that before you went to an AA meeting or after? It was before. So your surrender was before. Yeah. That's my story too. What I'm thinking you're describing, this is the way I describe what happened to me, was a spiritual bottom. I was internally destroyed. Mm -hmm. I knew that I could not control it. I knew that I was doomed to constantly drink. And I felt like I was disconnected from everything in the world. It was complete despair. Yet I had a good job. I had a wife. I had a little son. Everything looked good. I'd never been arrested or anything like that. I had no physical problems. That wasn't part of my bottom. It was all inside, but it was complete despair. I came to AA and said, tell me what to do. Yes. I was in Al-Anon for quite a while before I came into AA, right? And I would go into a club and I would be heading to an Al-Anon meeting and I would accidentally walk into an AA meeting and I'd be like, oh, I don't belong here. And I'd turn around and I'd, I'd walk out. <laughs> I knew that that was where I belonged because I knew down deep there was something wrong with my drinking, but it was my coping mechanism and I wasn't willing to give it up. It was still working. Inside, someone had described on your show like this euphoria that we feel that I felt anyway when I first drank because I always felt like I was an alien. I didn't belong anywhere. And when I drank, it was this euphoria like I've arrived. I feel whole. And it was a beautiful, wonderful feeling. And I chased it my entire drinking career. And I was never able to capture it again. I am so grateful that my higher power had gotten me to the point, because you know how low that elevator can continue to keep going down to some very dark levels. And I'm thankful I was able to walk out of the elevator where I did, but I knew I was heading into a dark place. It's very helpful to hear when I first came in, alcoholism is an elevator going down because I compared myself to other people who Mm -hmm. were like physically destroyed or who were in prison and had just gotten out or Mm -hmm. all kinds of things. It's like, that's not me. It's an elevator going down and you can get off, you know, thank goodness I got off on a higher floor where I was just having an emotional, spiritual bottom rather than the consequences that are waiting there if I had continued to drink. Exactly. How long were you in sobriety in New York, Peg? I was just there a year. I got sober there. And then I moved to Virginia 
by the way, I wouldn't have been able to move had I not been sober either, because the sobriety brought me a, a clarity, a certainty that I knew it was time to move on, you know, and grow. And I wouldn't have allowed myself to do that while I was still drinking. I was too fearful. And so I grew up here in AA in Virginia. The life that I have today is beautiful. But the number one benefit other than the relationship I have today with my higher power is the relationship I have with myself and how much I love and care for this human being that God put on this planet. And I was put here for a reason to be blessed with this opportunity to have another chance and then to be of service because I believe we're here to be of service and to love. And I could not give that to you if I wasn't giving it to myself first. What does loving oneself look like? What does that mean to you? It, it's hard to describe because it's a peace that I feel inside of myself. I don't feel this agitation. I don't feel like I'm crawling out of my skin because it's a relationship disease, right? And I can see how I better relate to other people today. And I allow them to love me because I love them. And I wasn't allowing anybody to come close. I didn't trust anybody. I was in a room full of people and was the loneliest person in the room. Mm. I don't feel that loneliness anymore because I'm, I'm not alone. I have you all. I have my people. And I have my HP, whom I call God. It's really this way I walk through the world now. And it's really more about others and how I can be of service. And that's, how, that's what filled me up. I really like the way that you put that. It sounds like you're saying to describe you know, how loving myself, how it's done is by being available and open to other people. Whereas when I was filled with self-loathing, it was because of my past behavior that I was ashamed of. I've cleared all that out with the steps. For some reason, before I had done that, when I looked at other people, I found everything wrong with them. <laughs> my, It was like to judge everyone. And because I felt bad about myself, I had to feel superior to everyone. Right. And anyone who did try and get close to me, God help them. Mm-hmm. I didn't want it. And today I want it. I learned how to be vulnerable to, with safe people. Mm-hmm. And I learned how to discern who's safe and who might not be so safe. Right. We're, we live in a big world with lots of different people. So Peg, how was working the steps with you? What were the obstacles that AA put in front of you that you said, oh no, I can't do that. And then having done it, you've reaped the rewards that you're describing. Well, we'll start at step two. (laughs) Two? Okay. (laughs) Step two came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Well, first of all, I didn't realize how insane I was until I I got well. And I didn't trust anybody. And I didn't see how I could put a trust in this entity that had been pretty punitive or I thought was punitive my whole life. Right. I just came back to the rooms and I just kept hearing this message of hope. And it started with step two for me. And then the hope and then the faith in step three. And realizing I don't have to do this alone anymore because I was very self-sufficient, unhappy, drunk. I learned that help is a complete sentence. 
the first three steps, that foundation that helped me move into the action steps, because the four, five, six, and seven was all about the relationship to myself and learning who I was, learning who I'd hurt, why it hurt them, how I hurt them, how I hurt myself, and then being able to trust another human being to share that with someone I trust, a human that I trusted with my first sponsor. And then to really look and be honest with myself about, okay, I've digested big chunks of myself. Am I really willing to change here? Six and seven doesn't take a lot of space up in the big book, right? And the first time I did the steps, I was like, well, this can't be that big a deal. <laughs> and it's everything. Let's, let's share six and yeah. seven. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. And seven, humbly asked him, to remove our shortcomings. Exactly. The shortest steps <laughs> get the shortest amount of space in the book and they take a long time, don't they? But it's it makes all the difference. I was willing to change. I wanted more of what I was starting to experience in terms of a relationship with my higher power. Someone said to me one time, they said, if there was a pill that you could take that would cure you of your alcoholism, would you take it? Two of them. Right? Oh, yeah, exactly. I take I two. Come on, more, please. <laughs> and I said, yeah. no, I wouldn't, because I would not want to give up this connection, the spiritual life or spiritual path that the steps have shown me is possible. I see what you're yeah, saying. I mean, exactly. it required my alcoholism to beat me into a state of willingness to actually try this on. And I love what I've got. Yeah. This isn't so much about not drinking anymore for me. It's about how do I live in the world and let go of it at the same time of all the things that I can't control. That's right, because it's an illusion anyway. I was able to then heal my relationships with other people with eight and nine. And then I think 10, 11, and 12 are more than just maintenance steps. I really do. I believe it's these layers of spirituality and these layers of continued healing that we're allowed to experience in this program that gives life the depth and the meaning for me, the color that makes life worthwhile. I was living in the margins of my life. It was very gray. That's when I knew I wasn't going to be able to continue. That was where alcohol took me internally, but it was just a matter of time before it manifested in my life externally. Peg, did you reach any resolution with your dad? Oh, that is such a wonderful question. You know, I'm working on that. And my sponsor actually has been very instrumental in this healing because I want to forgive this human that was hurt and hurt others as a result. And am I there yet? No, I'm not. But I am working on it because I understand the value of forgiveness today and how it will free me. And so I've worked through the resentment piece. I'm working now on forgiveness. Uh, Peg, it's been so great talking to you. And I can hear it, this, the love that you share with your sponsees and that you're talking about. I, it's, it's coming through to me. Thank you. Peg, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And thank you for the work you're doing. It's awesome. Black.
blast from the past. And now Bill W. talks about our singleness of purpose. Why can't AA be the answer to problems other than alcohol? This was recorded in 1957. It's about five and a half minutes long. So, uh, let's say I'm a narcotic as well as an alcoholic. Well, we got around in AA, a lot of people have had trouble not only with pills, but with morphine. I mean, a genuine addict. They identified with us, they joined us because they were also alcoholics. But naturally, having had the addiction problems, they know the awful agony of that. They want to carry this message to the pure, straight addicts. So, in some cases, they've tried to bring those people to AA meetings and bring them into full membership. Well, right away, the wheels begin to grind, because are we going to take on all of the world's problems, and can anybody with a problem join AA? No, we decided long ago, AA was for a drunk. No matter what complications the drunk has and how many other problems, we don't care anything about that. The only thing we want to know is he's drunk if he want to get over it. And, uh, and we'll stick to that. But now comes the guy with a current narcotic problem. He comes to an AA group and he says, well, I want to belong. Well, under group autonomy, this group can really do about as it likes. You can, you can say to them, well, uh, uh, we only deal with alcoholics here. Or you can say to him, well, look, you can come and sit in an open meeting and maybe you'll find a few friends around who've also had a narcotic problem who can help you start a narcotics group. Or maybe we're going to put you up on the platform and let you give a narcotic testimony and we're going to put you on the committee and we're going to take you right in. Well, this last mentioned course just doesn't work very well. Because if a straight narcotic, let us say, is to become an AA member, he has to be capable of doing AA 12 step work. He has to be capable of doing AA committee work, and he has to be capable of making an AA pitch from a platform, and how the hell can he if he's a narcotic? He can't. So that it is my hope that where there are good-sized open meetings, that AA members, who themselves have had a narcotic experience and wish to work with narcotics should certainly be permitted to bring these people in as visitors to get sick with the idea that they may be able to start their own group. But I don't see how we can go any further with that. And the group is the, is the last word on the subject. The group can do what it wants. Now then the question comes, if you've got in an institution You've got a peculiar condition where uh, they can't have but one meeting a week, the AA group. And here are a lot of narcotic people, and here are people with a, just a plain crime problem and other problems, and they see these drugs getting so much better emotionally, and say, how do you do it? And they go to the warden, and maybe the group goes to the warden and says, well, can't these other people come to our meeting? Or can't they have separate meetings and can't we help them out? Warden says, no, you can't have separate meetings. You just have one meeting a week. And it would be great if you have these people in. Or I'm telling you, I'm putting them there. So, okay. So in comes a guy with a sex problem, with a narcotic problem, uh, with a burglary problem, <laughs> or whatever it is. And he sits down with the AA group in the meeting. Well, I say, what out? 
The only thing that that group must do is to say, we're the AA neurotic group, or we are the AA burglary group, see? <laughs> if that group is going to be listed in the directory as an AA group, these other people have got to be visited. Then when they go out, there isn't any guarantee that uh, you're going to receive a guy who was just a plain yegg that never drank any grog. Maybe he would be received at an open meeting, maybe not. I, I, I don't know. I think that's up to, to each group. Now, you see, there are these borderline cases, which are not matters of shifting the AA tradition around. It's just a reasonable application. And again, it's this middle course. You can take the course. We'll have nothing to do with anything whatever but a drunk. A pure drunk. Well, in the first place, there ain't any pure drunk. <laughs> but all these things are Or you can take the attitude, AA is going to save the world, let's bring them all in. Now, how do you apply the AA tradition of the single purpose of AA and the no endorsement idea of AA and the group autonomy idea of AA if you take those three, three traditions? You can work out fair application which will make what we know available to these other situations and groups, and at the same time, not get us married and compromised, uh, which might ruin us. Because I think that it is a fundamental, running all through government and through all forms of society, that your first function is to preserve your own entity. Let us first preserve alcoholics and honor. Then next, let us, as individuals, do what we can for the world around us. I'm at the very wit's end. Cuckoo. I'm happy to be your sponsor. In fact, I wish I had one or two more sponsees like you. Gosh, that's nice to hear. I argue with you all the time and mostly refuse all the things you suggest. Yeah, but I still wish I had one or two more like you. The problem is I have six. (laughs) (laughs) It's really not that funny. Thanks for joining us. The AA Grapevine Half Hour Variety Hour is posted every Monday and is produced by AA Grapevine, Inc., We don't speak for AA as a whole. We share the experience, strength, and hope of members to help others recover from alcoholism. Podcast info, including how to call in, is at aagrapevine.org slash podcast. Find AA Grapevine on Instagram and the AA Grapevine channel on YouTube. All things Grapevine are available at aagrapevine.org. If you want to know more about AA, Google Alcoholics Anonymous and your city or visit aa.org.